Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Hi, you're listening to the Financial Foresight Podcast today. It's myself, Isaiah Douglas, Ian Bloom, and Dwight Detloff. Colin, unfortunately, felt like there were better uses of time today and is still being lazy from the holiday weekend. Um, The topic that we're going to chat on today first is cash and investing. I see a lot of different posts through social media asking the question, when do I hold cash? How much do I hold? Um, And when do I invest? And what do I invest in? And any thoughts on when to do certain things and maybe life stages? Yeah, uh, cash is kind of a tricky thing. You know, everybody wants there to be a flat answer for a question. And we've kind of already established on this podcast that well, it depends is usually the right answer. Um, But some of the things that point you in the direction of how much you should hold in cash are what your monthly expenses are and how many months you really need in case of a job change. So a good rule of thumb, though it's not perfect, is if you are a single income household, as in there's one income, you will then need about six months worth of expenses in savings. Because if you lost that income, it might take you a little while to find a job. And in a dual income household, the rule of thumb is is three months because there's a little bit more of a cushion in terms of other incomes coming into the household to help out. So having some of that is good. Um, So that's just the building up of a basic emergency fund. But beyond the basic emergency fund, there are like some life events that are pretty useful to have cash for, buying a house, those sorts of things. Yeah, I tend to agree Um, with the other thing, too, when I'm working with business owners, and this is always challenging, is try to keep six, sometimes even 12 months of cash um, and taking into account expenses from the business as well. Um, I think the biggest challenge that I have in working with people is that cash just doesn't earn anything. And so it just becomes this double edged sword of, okay, I'm going to keep a bunch of cash in there and earn one, two percent. Can I go get you know, put it somewhere else. And so I think it's really making sure everybody understands that, hey, look, this this is here in case of emergency or, you know, to your point, Ian, like, hey, this is here because you're going to buy a house in 18 months and you're going to really want to make sure that that money's here. Um, so, you know, going all in on crypto is, is probably not a prudent choice. Yeah. And I think your point, Dwight, on cash earning nothing If you have it, let's say with a big national brand, you're going to be paid pennies on the money you put in there. I think one of the easiest things you can do is go out and find a higher yielding account, whether that's a credit union, um, Ally, Marcus, other ideas of getting, you know, 2.2, I think right now is something that is absolutely obtainable. FDIC insured, to me, that's great. And rewind the clock back to 2018, the best performing asset class was cash better than stocks, better than bonds, better than anything. 
And that blows a lot of people's minds, and that's very rarely the, the situation. But there's a, an old saying that always goes, you know, when you have cash and you have a savings, less emergencies tend to happen. And life always seems to snowball. And when you don't have that savings there, a lot of bad stuff can then start to pile up. And yeah, you don't want to hoard cash because long-term inflation eats away. Everyone's seen the charts of what did a loaf of bread or what did milk cost in 1972 versus what does it do now? I get that. But at the same time, I think back to Ian's point, three months for a joint income household based on your expenses, six months for a single person, that's always been my rule of thumb. You can make adjustments as needed, but that's an easy way to get started with understanding you know, where to have it as far as a cash level. Outside of that, I'm much more a fan of putting money away and you know, make sure that you do uh, you know, retirement accounts before you start just throwing that money into a taxable account and, and purchasing things. Again, unless you know that you need that money sooner for let's say a house or other things. Yeah, I I think one of the better one of the better points you just made is how life tends to snowball by the way, cuz I think that's not talked about a lot, but if you can't fully fix the car, it's more likely to break again, right? So if you're just doing the bare minimum repairs when you take it into the shop when it breaks the first time instead of, you know, paying probably the larger bill to get all those kind of maybe should do things done, like replacing the air filter or whatever. Like those those things tend to be the reason the car breaks the next time. And, and that doesn't just go for cars. It goes for houses. It goes for other aspects of life as well. Um, so having access to that extra cash that you can use in case of emergencies actually helps you avoid the next emergency. And that's a big deal. But also to your point, investing super important. Um, even though cash was the best performing asset last year, historically it performs pretty terribly compared to the market, to inflation, to all the other factors out there. So making sure that you're building up tax advantaged accounts and, and doing that early and often is kind of the key to building financial independence. And we'll touch on on the next topic a little bit more about where you can put some of that money in those kind of tax deferred or retirement savings vehicles when we talk about employer benefits after Tweet of the Week. So one other thing on cash uh, is just, again, this is going to depend on where you are in your life cycle uh, and things like that. But using it as a ballast is, is uh, it can be a great tool. And so this really works well as you're heading into retirement or into retirement. Um, Isaiah, like you said, it, it has performed well. Um, at least recently, and Ian, not so great over time uh, in the long run. But if you're getting close to retirement, this is a great way to kind of say, hey, are we at the peak of the market? All these other things, you know, of course, nobody really knows. But if you're getting close to retirement, having some cash is a is a great ballast. But of course, you don't want to have too much cash because you're going to probably be retired for 20, 30 years, 35, 40 years. So it's a really long time. Um, so as we kind of talk a little bit more about investing later on, um, just kind of keeping that it's a yin and yang. It's a balancing act of how much do you want to keep? Um, how much are you comfortable with? So you can ride out some of that, those ups and downs. Um, but you certainly it's unlikely you're going to want to have 100% of your retirement in cash. Yeah. And to that point, actually, Dwight, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is the emotional benefit of having cash. My uh, my father-in-law and mentor, when we were first talking about how much cl cash clients should have, I just said clash, um, cash clients should have, is is that it should be a pillow comfort level of security. So I have some clients who want to have a little bit more cash because it makes them feel good. Specifically, one of my clients is an accountant by trade. 
And because she deals with the ins and outs of numbers every day and deals with cash flow, she likes seeing an excess of cash. And that's okay, right? Like if she's earning enough money and her investments are doing well enough that she's going to be able to retire anyway, if the money is slightly less efficient, but it provides a huge emotional benefit for it to be sitting there in cash for her, I'm fine with it as a planner. So I think it's a matter of balancing the feel goods with the actual mathematical benefits of doing things. And that definitely is where kind of more of the art of these decisions as opposed to the science comes in. Because if you have somebody who really, really likes cash and likes to see it often and feels better when it's there, you should make sure there's enough of it there for them to feel good. Yep. No. And there's a few business owners that I, that I've talked to that are very similar where, um, some are certainly, Hey, no, I don't want to keep any, I'd rather just invest this within the business and, and figure out how to maximize that those dollars. But others are like, no, I've, you know, that have been around for long enough. have seen 2008 happen and 2009 seen manufacturing hit and be like, no, I want this giant lump of cash here because when, you know, the sofa hits the fan, um, you know, I've got to pay people. I want to be able to make sure that, uh, I have a war chest that I can go take advantage of opportunities. Um, so it's like, all right, well, as long as you understand that you're, you know, maybe going to earn two, two and a half percent and that's about it. Um, just understand there's a trade-off and cool, let's move on. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of benefits uh, to having, it's kind of one of those old sayings, like, you know, uh, you know, when you need it, you can't get it. So sometimes it's kind of nice to have it when you don't need it. I heard a, an interesting take, and this is a couple years ago, and it was from a a wholesaler, so someone that calls on advisors when I was at my previous firm talking about an advisor that he had met with. I think they might have been in Michigan. I, I can't remember exactly where they were at, but they advocated for all equities and then anything outside of equities that they just had their clients holding cash, which is an interesting take. Don't hate it. I don't personally do that, but it is an interesting idea where you get the upside and you don't, your diversification is just that FDIC insured cash sitting in the bank. And then everything else is pretty much aggressive and you just set your allocation accordingly. So what's the argument? Like bonds just aren't paying anything. So the juice isn't worth the squeeze and you just leave it. That was pretty much what they had said that, you know, interest rates are so low bonds. There's enough risk, yada, yada, yada. I, again, interesting take. Just wanted to throw it out there. I don't necessarily do that. I think there's some benefits to fixed income, especially on the municipal side with some tax free for folks, especially if they're in a higher income bracket. Mr. Kitsis, if you're listening to this, I'd love to see an article on your blog about how that <laughs> plays out in the long run. <laughs> right. Let's get Kitsis in here. Um, do we want to roll over to Tweet of the Week? Let's do it. Okay, so Tweet of the Week chose Isaiah's tweet, so let's go ahead and hear what you got. All right, so Dr. Daniel Crosby, for those um, Ian and Dwight know that I'm a big fan, he is the author of many books, but one that I read recently called The Behavioral Investor, and I follow him on Twitter, obviously, for Tweet of the Week. His recent tweet was my crack at trying to decipher the fundamental building blocks of good investor behavior. And it goes, accept responsibility, embrace pain, develop patience, welcome uncertainty, relish simplicity, and measure my purpose. I love this tweet. The last part is actually going to be something that I'm going to write an article about from the standpoint of I have a, a podcast called the Veterinarian Success Podcast, which is very niche specific to my audience. And I always ask, what does success look like for someone personally and professionally? I've yet to ever hear someone say, I want to beat the S&P 500. Never came up. Yeah. And I'm waiting for that to, to show up, but I, I haven't heard it yet. Um, simplicity is important to make sure you understand what you own. 
uncertainty. The market's always uncertain, even when you think you know something. As much as I love the whole Howard Marks mastering the business cycle and seeing where things are at, you can make forecasts and understand probabilistically where things might be, but you're never going to know for sure. Patience is really important. Um, pain and be able to embrace that. I'm a factor guy, so there's certain factors that go in and out of style. They can be very painful. Um, shout out to Corey Hofstein, no, no pain, no premium. So that's important. And then responsibility at the end of the day, whether you work with someone, whether you do it yourself, you always have to accept responsibility for your situation and hold people accountable. Yeah, I really like the measure your purpose into that because I feel like a lot of people when they invest, they're just like, I, I just want to make money. It's like, yeah, but why though? So how do we know if we've made enough? Because you can, like you said, you could throw everything into equities and just ride that wave and you'll see it go up dramatically. But is the emotional pain worth, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's, I just think it's a really interesting point. I don't think a lot of people do that. I don't think a lot of people look at investing and, and say, am I getting exactly what I need out of this? And, and that's where we can come in and be helpful. But I also like all the other points. I think that's a well-written tweet, which I don't get to say often because most tweets are garbage. <laughs> yeah, I think we've talked about it here before, just the benchmarking to what. So that's a good point, Isaiah. Like nobody, most people aren't saying, hey, I want to beat the S&P 500. Um, so, you know, what is your benchmark? And, you know, how do you know if you have enough um, or more than enough? Um I heard Dr. Dr. William Bernstein say the other day on another podcast, just kind of, you know, if you've, if you've won the game, then stop playing. So, you know, at what point do you kind of say, okay, this is, this is it. And the way to get rich and the way to stay rich are very different. A lot of times getting rich for people is being concentrated. So that could be a business owner really investing back in their business or an individual getting stock options, working for a, a startup. Mm -hmm. That is very different than staying rich. And to that point, when you've made it, you don't need to go and make it again. Just stay rich and be smart. Don't be an idiot. And a lot of times that's all it takes is having someone be there to be that person in between you and stupid decisions as Carl Richards, I think, has written with his little uh, drawings before. A lot of times that's it. Yeah. You can do really well. And so many people could get to you know, financial freedom like we talked about earlier on in podcasts if they just didn't succumb to bad decision making or the shiny object syndrome. And, Simple, uh, not easy. Absolutely. Albert Einstein. Yeah, well, it's to your point, it's like being concentrated might have gotten you there, but being concentrated is also the riskiest thing you can do, right? So, you know, Dwight was talking about cash in his business owner's pockets and them always wanting to invest back in the business. And I actually gave a talk recently to a group of business owners about like, hey, you guys are all doing pretty well, so let's uh, let's cut that stuff out. You know, um, your businesses are doing great. Let's not keep, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash in there. Let's diversify out some of your net worth because the, keep staying at that point requires having money in different buckets. You can't just do it um, because if the business fails, then you fail, etc. So fund your own uh, fund your own buyout is usually try to how do I yeah exactly the best time the yeah, best exactly. time to think about losing is when you're winning so again the economy's going great things are going well think about what happens when it doesn't continue and I think that's really important for a lot of folks to understand yeah you don't need a win more strategy right once you're already winning life's good let's keep it good all right. Changing gears a little bit, moving on to employer benefits. Um, you know, wanted to talk about something that tends to be uh, a bit of an un uh, overlooked topic. What are you guys' thoughts? 
Oh man, employer benefits is actually one of the areas I help people the most uh, because I think there's a lot of little maximizations in there that folks aren't looking at. You know, deciding between different health insurance plans, how much to save in the HSA, how much to save in the 401k, whether it's Roth or traditional, all of these things are like super impactful, but they are all decided based on some buttons you click on a website or boxes you check on a form. Like it, they seem so inconsequential and then you pull back and look at the long-term financial consequences of them and they're huge. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff to talk about here. Well, and one that I always look at too is just from the insurance piece. And if you have one spouse that's insured and one, or sorry, maybe one spouse that's employed and one that's not, you can get spousal benefits through the insurances there and it's a lot cheaper. Yes, it's a group plan, which typically means it's not portable. So if you would leave that job, you lose the insurance. But we've all seen through our past lives, there's the uh, wonderful insurance people that call themselves financial advisors that want to sell expensive insurance when a lot of times you can get very affordable, cheap insurance through your employer that will cover you. And it's usually a combination of inexpensive term insurance and then adding on the insurance you have at your employer to make it make sense. And you can do that very cost effectively. That's an area that so many people just do not take advantage of or don't think about um, having a discussion around. Well, and it's such a and it's such a thing that where some of these open enrollments are just not even active open enrollments. They're just passive, meaning if you don't do anything, you're just going to be in the same as last year. And, uh, you know, when I was in public accounting, we used to always say, Sally, Sally is your front of me. Sally meaning same as last year. Um, so it's just easy to put things on autopilot and maybe that insurance doesn't make, whether it's insurance or, or whatever it is, may or may not continue to make sense. Um, and sometimes what I try to talk to folks about too is, is, hey, these things aren't permanent forever. Yes, it's challenging to change your health insurance unless you have a qualifying event, but you know, you're stuck with it for a year and then you can change again. So, you know, often looking at deductibles and um, maximizing that with, uh, you know, what you have in a savings account or a health savings account um, and trying to show folks that, hey, you don't need to have this really low deductible. You may not need this really low deductible plan. You can save some money uh, over the long run and things like that. And then on the other side, too, uh, working with, you know, business owners, especially if these are closely held businesses, obviously, if it's a Fortune 500 company, that's going to be, you know, almost impossible to ever change. But, you know, I've worked with business owners as well to review those uh, current um, benefit offerings and try to understand what employees uh, value and what they want. And sometimes there's some surprising differences there, um, which ends up working out really well for everybody. Yeah. I mean, I think also one of the things that's overlooked is disability insurance. Um, so understanding what your disability policy is, especially to a lot of the people that, you know, we tend to work with a lot of younger age folks can be super, super important. Um, because disability insurance is probably the most significant benefit you have for the first maybe 20 years of your working career. If something happens that makes you disabled, you get paid income traditionally through the end of your your retirement age, so usually through age 65. And that could be uh, you know, millions of dollars depending on what you were earning and how early you got disabled and stuff like that. So understanding uh, the insurance benefits, whether it's the life insurance that Isaiah was talking about or the disability insurance that I'm talking about or the health insurance that Dwight was talking about. These are all places where you can probably make some changes to maximize stuff. Um, though, to be fair, in, in a lot of cases, disability plans are kind of just either you have them or you don't. 
Um, but if you don't have them, you need to know how to get them. So that's that's pretty important. Disability disability is a big point, Ian, and a lot of times I'm always an advocate for having an individual plan, which is always yours because it's inherently expensive. Once you know later on in life, let's say you move and you're 35 or 40, and next, the next place doesn't offer disability, you're kind of in a tough situation. But you can use that in tandem with something that you purchase individually. And again, you don't have to get a crazy expensive plan. Depending on your occupation, there's a lot of differences. Um, and not to get into a whole disability discussion because it is very detailed, but we can link to an article that covers it, at least for what I would call medical professionals, which is more of the focus for me, dental and vet. Uh, I've written a, a piece on that specific industry So uh, from that standpoint. I mean, y- your stuff is focused for medical professionals, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be generally applicable to all, yeah. um, to all folks with similar earning potentials, which is a good point. Yeah, and the, the Roth 401k, real quick, that's another one just from the standpoint of the in, there's no income limits on that. And again, you have to understand your personal tax situation and where you're at. But that makes a ton of sense because all employer matches are always going to be traditional. And if you put in uh, from a Roth perspective, you are obviously taking and paying those taxes today. But you can make those adjustments and changes over time because today we're in a low tax environment. After 2020, that could very much change where maybe it makes a lot more sense to do a traditional plan. Uh, 2026. I was talking about the presidential election. Oh, Gotcha. And who gets elected? Yeah, Dwight. Taxes can change regardless of of what the law says, as long as the administration is yes. wanting yes. to do so. Yeah. Well, I just meant they're slated. The bulk of the stuff is slated to change one one twenty twenty six. But yeah, I think if there is a new administration, there it'll probably take some time anyway to uh, to move the needle. But yeah, no doubt about it. Um, Plus the Roth, the Roth tax savings are just so powerful over time because you have to remember that the balance in the account theoretically grows dramatically over your working career, and that is tax-free. So the growth is all tax-free in retirement, assuming you withdraw it after age 59 and a half and all, all the normal disclaimers, but it can be super, super beneficial later on. I've used the word super a lot. <laughs> And it's not either. It's not either or. So you can yeah. still use a traditional piece and the Roth piece um, and blend those. So using that traditional portion of your four hundred one k might allow you to uh, drop your you know tax bracket or you know drop your adjusted gross income and unlock uh, other abilities. I know sometimes it's kind of nice if you can drop your income enough, and if you're a hyper saver, you could unlock. Um, Roth IRA eligibility and some of these other eligibilities um, as well. And, you know, if you've got kids or children close to college age, it also can affect your FAFSA. So again, it's not an either or, it kind of works in tandem. But the other thing is the Roth is not, uh, it is becoming more common, but it's not super common. So one of the nice things is if you, depending on your employer and how open they are, you can always start discussing that with them as far as offering that option. Um, and it might not, they might not be able to say yes right away, but they might be able to work with their current 401k uh, administrator. So if it's something that is not an option and it's something that makes sense for you, just make sure you talk to your employer. Um, and if you're in the position that you can make that change, like if you're a business owner or you own your own practice or whatever the situation is, then it's something to really consider. Yeah, and I just, I know this podcast exists to support advisors doing things the right way. And shout out to those that actually spend the time to talk about employer benefits. I know my previous firm, there was very limited discussion because, again, the compensation structure was AUM that was at that firm. They didn't really give a damn about what was outside of that and making those decisions. So 
it's important that you find someone if you do want to work with someone because as we just talked there's a ton of planning opportunities within that discussion and we could record multiple multiple episodes on topics within employer benefits so make sure that you spend the time to review them but also if you have someone you're working with that they're spending the time to review what options you have well, I want to plug uh, be working with an independent planner for a second, too, just because, you know, a lot of times in open enrollment, there are folks that are helping uh, your employer do the open enrollment process. And oftentimes they are the insurance agents and things like that. And, you know, many times they are helpful, but sometimes they're, you know, get on this, uh, the fear track. So, you know, heavy pushes towards accidental insurance or indemnity insurances, things like that. Um, so... Look, working with an advisor and being able to see what do you actually need and is your employer the best place to get this, you know, kind of helps making sure that somebody doesn't just make a knee jerk reaction and sign up for a bunch of policies that that may or may not make sense. Um, so, again, working with somebody that understands your entire holistic picture uh, will help get you a good answer and help give you that confidence to know that, OK, we're affirmatively selecting or you know, unselecting certain benefits for, for a given reason. Yeah, you want to make sure you have some unbiased advice going into it. Um, on the subject of like completely supplemental benefits, like the indemnity insurances you were talking about, I don't like most of them, but one of the benefits that I've seen that's been super useful for people uh, that I've worked with recently has been legal insurances, which are starting to become more common at large employers. And it can be a good opportunity to save some money and make sure you get the basic legal documents done. Um, one of the major providers is MetLife. They have a product called MetLaw or Hyatt Legal. And that stuff can be pretty good um, because it gives you the opportunity to work with, granted, not the most highly compensated and therefore best attorney, but as long as you know what you're doing, you can walk out of it with some pretty great legal document packages for next to nothing or nothing after the premium. So not that bad. That's a great point, Ian. And I actually just had a, a dentist that works for a, a large organization show me that on their benefit form. And uh, I was like, well, as long as you understand what you get from that, and if you can get some of the documents that you need, I think it's a great, I think it was $18 a month uh, was what they were going to pay, which is a lot cheaper than the 1500 to two grand that you're going to spend to uh, draft some of those initial documents. Yeah, I mean, if if you could pay $200 a year and get your wills, powers of attorney and living will done, I'm all for it. Let's get it Absolutely. done. <laughs> yes, that's what I was trying to drive home to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also understand what exclusions are in there, right? Like usually it's like no DUIs, like <laughs> they're not they're not doing anything from professional liability. So just kind of make sure you know what you're excluding. It's not like, hey, I get to pay $200 a year and I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> uh, got Saul Goodman on call forever. It's not just make sure you read the fine print. <laughs> right. You, do, you shouldn't assume that they provide the full suite of every attorney service possible at that price <laughs> yes. point. It's it, They might discount some additional services, but for the most part, they're there for like traffic tickets and the basic legal documents and that kind of stuff. So, Any final points on employer benefits before we wrap up for today's episode that you want to make sure we drive home? I would say the first one is just, you know, please make sure you're paying attention to this stuff. Because stuff that looks like $5 a paycheck or $10 a paycheck, if you make wrong decisions there, you know, three or four times on these small benefits, it really does start to add up and impact your outcomes over, 
you know, the next 10 years of your life. So make sure you're paying for stuff that you need and that you're getting the benefits you actually do need as well. Yeah. And the other thing is, is just speak up. If, uh, if there's something there in your employer that isn't offering, um, that you'd like to see, or you want changes, um, you know, try to figure out who's in charge of benefits at, uh, at work and, um, start that conversation and start it early. Um, I think, as somebody that used to do that at my in my previous life, um, a lot of that stuff starts a lot sooner than you think. So when open enrollment's coming up, like those decisions have already been made quite a long time ago. So just kind of th- start thinking about that. Um, if you want to see some of those changes, start that conversation uh, early. Great points. I'm going to rewind it back to the tweet of the week and talk about just accepting responsibility and embrace the pain when you do invest. Who knows when we see the next correction, recession, all these things that the financial media will love to blow out of proportion. Stick to a plan, understand what you own, why you own it, and be there for the long term. Because even if you're getting into retirement, you still, per Dwight's point, are going to have 25, 30 years in retirement, which is a long time. It's not like it's going to be gone tomorrow. So just be smart about things, embrace the pain, because at the end of the day, that pain will drive returns. So take care. Thanks so much for listening. We hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.